0: degree matters. and Every additional warming would lead to more and more impacts.
1: Welcome to today's episode of The Jolt. It's the 7th of December. I'm Kira Taylor, your host. Later in today's episode, we'll look into the world's remaining carbon budget and the risk of overshooting the goal to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. But first, let's dive into the top climate and energy stories from around the world today. COP28 needs to deliver a bullet train to speed up climate action, according to UN Climate Change Executive Secretary Simon Steele. Unfortunately, though, we currently have an old caboose chugging over rickety tracks, he said at a press conference on Wednesday. The agreement on loss and damage funding early in the summit gave it a spring in its step, but this was only the start, he added. He warned that the world is kidding itself if it thinks loss and damage is all that's required at COP, adding good intentions won't halve emissions this decade or save lives now. He called for the world to deliver doubled adaptation finance. Governments also need to give their negotiators clear marching orders to achieve the highest possible ambition and avoid what he called point scoring or lowest common denominator politics. Meanwhile, he warned against the summit conclusions being a grab bag of wish lists and heavy on posturing. If the world wants to save lives and keep the 1.5 degree warming limit, COP28 must have an ambitious outcome, he said. COP28 should mark the beginning of the end for fossil fuels, said EU climate chief Wipka Hochstra. The world needs to get rid of fossil fuels in full, and all parties need to agree to it, he said in Dubai. He insisted that the world must peak emissions by 2025 at the latest, and reduce emissions by 43% by 2030. Speaking to journalists, he said, We have no alternative than to follow what scientists tell us, and they are telling us we're simply not on track. They are telling us that we need to accelerate our emissions reductions, and we need to do it this decade. Ireland has pledged to double its climate finance contribution, offering up 225 million euros next year. It has also pledged 12 million euros to help build resilience in places impacted by the climate crisis. You can listen to other finance pledges made at COP28 in yesterday's episode. companies in high emitting sectors are not aligned with the Paris agreement according to a new study by Imperial College London. Corporate behaviour needs to change if the private sector is to better contribute to national and global sustainability efforts it found. The research shows that companies aligned with the Paris agreement focused on developing innovative solutions. Meanwhile companies that weren't aligned focused on risk mitigating such as modifying existing assets. Canada plans to launch a cap-and trade system in 2026 to limit emissions from the oil and gas sector, according to Reuters. Government statistics show the industry is Canada's biggest polluter, producing more than a quarter of the country's total emissions in 2021. The framework for the cap will be announced today, with the draft regulation expected next year. According to Federal Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson, there will be some time for adoption, but there will be a significant reduction in greenhouse gas emissions from the oil and gas sector by 2030. Russian President Vladimir Putin visited Saudi Arabia on a rare foreign trip. According to Bloomberg, their talks included oil. It follows Petrostate alliance OPEC Plus and other major oil producers agreeing to extend and intensify production cuts to rally prices. Putin had previously been in Abu Dhabi to meet with United Arab Emirates President Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nahyan. That's just around the corner from COP28, taking place just over 100 kilometers away in Dubai. Sticking with the Middle East, the International Atomic Energy Agency is collaborating with Saudi Arabia on developing nuclear power, according to Arab News. The newspaper quotes Wei Huang, director at the agency's Department of Nuclear Energy. He said the agency is seeing quite strong interest in the region in nuclear power in order to improve energy security and help decarbonize. In more nuclear news, nine organisations have won contracts worth a total of £11.6 million with the UK's Atomic Energy Authority. It's part of a plan to develop fusion energy. The technology, which combines rather than splits atoms, is still being developed, but it is seen as a potential low-carbon sustainable energy source. The awarded contracts look at prototypes for novel fusion materials, manufacturing and technology, as well as developing heating and cooling systems for the machines. Korea Southern Power and Norwegian state-owned company Equinor have signed a Memorandum of Understanding to explore potential collaboration on offshore wind projects. It is hoped this will help contribute to Korea's goal to reach carbon neutrality by 2050. And finally, a continuing lack of skilled workers could threaten Europe's clean energy transition. That's the conclusion drawn by the European Climate, Infrastructure and Environment Executive Agency following a two-day meeting of experts in Madrid. The EU has a plethora of climate targets for 2030, including for energy efficiency and renewable energy, but this will need a skilled workforce to deliver it. This means more needs to be done to attract people, particularly at the start of their career, into the clean energy sector. An estimated 3 to 4 million European construction workers will also need to develop new skills if the EU wants to deliver its energy goals, according to the agency. That's it for today's news, now let's dive into the story of the moment. Carbon dioxide is one of the major greenhouse gases heating up our world. The more we put into the atmosphere, the more global warming occurs. The Paris Agreement aims to keep warming below a 1.5 degree increase on pre-industrial levels. But how much time does the world have before it tips over that 1.5 degree threshold? A new report has calculated that with rather worrying outcomes. I spoke to Pierre Friedlingstein, professor at the University of Exeter and lead on the global carbon budget to find out more. What is the Global Carbon Budget?
0: The Global Carbon Budget is an activity that we've been running for 18 years now. It involves a large number of carbon cycle scientists across the world. For this edition this year, we had more than 120 co authors involved in the publication. It's a report which assesses every year uh, the emissions of CO2 into the atmosphere due to human activities. So fossil fuel burning of coal, oil, gas at the country level. Land use change emissions from deforestation, also accounting for I mean, reforestation or afforestation in some in some countries. Again, we do this at the country level, and then we get the global numbers. Then we look at the fate of these emissions into the atmosphere, the fraction that stays in the atmosphere, the amount that goes back into the land, natural forest, or into the ocean, making I mean, using a set of different models and observation, atmospheric observation, ocean observation, and so on to try to get the best estimate of what's happening to the CO2 we are actually uh, emitting at the moment into the atmosphere.
1: All of this allows scientists to work out how long the world has before it crosses the 1.5 degree threshold. And it's not long.
0: We can say that the budget from January 1st, 2024, it's about 275 billion tonnes of CO2. Given that we emit about 40 every single year, we would exhaust this budget in around seven years. So if we keep emitting the same amount of CO2 as we did this year, we would reach this threshold and therefore having a well, 50% chance because there is the uncertainty. So as in IPCC, we use the numbers which represent a 50% chance to meet the target. So in seven years, we would meet 1.5 degrees. We would cross it and continue to have increasing warming. So to stay below, we have to limit emissions under this number, which mean massive reductions.
1: And when you say the likelihood is 50%, is that based on policy? Is it based on you know, regulations that you're seeing, or is it more the chance it's, of it?
0: It's more, yeah, it's a chance based on oral understanding of, of the physical response of, uh, of the climate system. So when you emit CO2, there's a fraction that's in the atmosphere. There is a bit of uncertainty on this fraction, essentially in the future, because I mean, the capacity of the land and ocean to remove CO2 depends on the climate change itself. So there's a bit of a feedback there that we need to factor in with uncertainties because we're talking about future projections. And there's also uncertainty on the the level of warming that you get for a given level of CO2 in the atmosphere, which is what we call the climate sensitivity. And also, there is uncertainty in the contribution of other gases, non-CO2, methane and two and aerosols. They will also contribute to some of this warming. And so you have to factor this in, and of course, there is also uncertainty on the amount of warming from reducing aerosols in the next 10, 20 years, reducing methane in, in the next 10, 20 years. So when you put all of these together, there is uncertainty, and you say, well, this is the best estimate, that's a central estimate, 275, but it's uncertain, So we, and it's, this is why we say there's a 50% chance that we would be okay you would be still below 1.5 if you amount. Equally, there's like a 50% chance, you might be above. So you might be above by a tenth of a degree, you might be above a bit more. That's, that's the uncertainty in the response of the system to our emissions.
1: Keeping global warming below two degrees warming gives more leeway, according to Pierre, but that comes with additional impacts.
0: Two degrees, you have more time, right? Um, there's like another half a degree. So you can afford a bit of more emissions into, into the atmosphere before you reach two degrees. It's like twenty eight years. So as opposed to seven years of current emission, it would be twenty eight years of current emission. You still need to reach a zero at some point. And
1: you would see presumably a lot more climate impacts, a lot more extreme weather. You,
0: you would you would see a lot more. But we we are, we are we are already seeing more climate impacts and extreme weather than we used to like twenty years ago. I mean, if you look at I mean the extreme, we've had, least this year or last year across the world, it's already unprecedented. But yes, you you will see more. You will see more one point five than today, and you will see much more at two degrees than at one point five.
1: Throughout the past decades, the overall trend has been an increase in emissions. Nowadays, sixty percent of the world's emissions come from the biggest emitters: China, the US, India, and the EU twenty-seven.
0: So, if you if you look at the global numbers first, I mean the global emissions of uh, CO two from fossil fuel burning uh, have been increasing this year <clears throat> compared to last year. So if you look at the long-term trends, I mean, the CO2 emissions have been increasing pretty much all the time since since the onset of the Industrial Revolution. They were about 10 billion tons in the 60s, 20 in the 80s, and now around 40 billion tons. They've been increasing steadily with some up and down sometimes, like during COVID, for example, there was a small reduction in emissions, about 5% reduction, but they recovered after COVID and we are still recovering. And now in 23, we are at an emission level, which is above pre-COVID in 2019. If we look at the big countries responsible for, I mean, these emissions and the increase, uh, China is number one contributor to CO2 emissions. I mean, currently, China is responsible for about 30% of global emissions. Uh, Then you have the U.S. and then India, which is now third on the list, and then the EU27. And then I mean, the other countries with I mean, declining importance in terms of emissions. If we take these four big countries slash region together, it's about 60% of all emissions. So now if we look at I mean, how they change this year compared to last year, again, it's, it's interesting. Uh, if you look at China, Chinese emission have been increasing in 2023 by about 4%. And the main reason is China had still quite severe lockdown in 2022. And so, I mean, the Chinese economy is kind of recovering from the lockdown situation a bit like what, I mean, the US or EU, EU experience in 2021. India, emissions are increasing quite fast, about 8% this year compared to last year because of the increasing demand in energy to support I mean, the growth in uh, the, the country, its economy, its population. So there's a large amount of renewable being deployed in India, as in China, but it's not enough to meet the demand in energy. So they are also, at the same time, that they use low. Because of renewable, they also use more and more coal or oil for transportation. Uh, EU and US, it's different because emissions are declining. Again, I mean for EU, the decline this year compared to last year is about some I mean, a bit more than seven percent, seven point four percent, and decline in the emissions in the US is about three percent this year. So it goes in the right direction. We are emitting less. CO2 than before, than last year, and it's, it's a long-term trend. The decline in, uh, in the, essentially in OECD countries, developed countries, but still it's not fast enough.
1: Alongside the use of fossil fuels, the report also looks at the impact of land use, including deforestation. While there have been small improvements, the overall situation is worrying.
0: So we look at deforestation uh, across the world and, and land, land use in general. So there's essentially two opposite flux when we when we talk about land use, one which is goes in the right direction. It's like afforestation, reforestation. So we do replant trees. We let trees recover from, I mean, I mean past disturbance. Many places in the world now, we can reduce the amount of crop we need, at least the surface we need. Uh, that's the case in, well, in, in, in Europe, in China, also in, in, in the global south in general. But in other parts of the world, we are still... I mean, removing forests. We are still deforesting mainly in the tropics. I mean, the main countries responsible for more than 50 percent of global deforestation is Brazil, Indonesia, the Democratic Republic of Congo. I mean, these two, the three countries together represent 50 percent, a bit more. So we look at the trends again in deforestation. Is it going in the right direction? Because there was lots of I mean, ambitions to stop deforestation. At the COP26, two years ago, the countries agreed, for example, that we should stop deforestation by 2030, which is in seven years now. If you look at the trends, deforestation is reducing, so it goes in the right direction, but it's only reducing by about 1% per year. So you can imagine that if we continue to reduce by 1% per year, we won't reach zero deforestation in seven years.
1: That's all we have time for today. Many thanks for joining me. I'll be back next week with another episode of The Jolt, and my colleague Sam Morgan will be coming to you across the airwaves tomorrow. If you want more climate and energy news, head over to the Foresight website. There you can find an opinion piece by Thomas Alan Kwan from Schneider Electric looking at the benefits of building renovation. That comes ahead of today's key round of negotiations on Europe's new building law. There's also a deep dive into greening steel by Heather O'Brien. The Jolt is free to air, so please do spread the word and share the episode if you enjoyed listening. Thanks to everyone at Foresight for helping make The Jolt possible and shout out to Mute Island for providing the theme music. Until next time, thanks for being a part of The Jolt.